0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. You all ready for this On WCPT 820.
1: It's Joan Esposito's show. Welcome. Whatever you ate, whoever you ate it with, happy post-Thanksgiving. I hope you enjoyed yours. And uh, thank you and congratulations to you for doing something different today. Besides just spending money, although we love it, you know, as Americans, we love it when we spend money collectively. It's good. It's good for everybody. And we'll be talking about that a little bit later on some local places you can spend your money, um, some local cultural places, some local Purchase Stuff Places. Uh, we are following the release of hostages between uh, Gaza and Israel, so we'll keep you posted on that as we go along. I'm Turi, with you, writer, in for Joan Esposito today. Um, I've been watching and thinking a lot about the hostage release. And while I've been watching all of this, you know, if you take in the flow of information, you get served a lot of stuff. Some of it is strictly information and some of it is just inflammatory. And someone I know on Facebook posted a very angry note about something that I'd heard nothing about, which is that a local bookstore, I will not mention its name, closed for a day in solidarity with the women and children of Palestine. Just one side. Meanwhile, in New York City, an Israeli-owned coffee shop posted that they were being punished for their pro-Israel views and being attacked for their pro-Israel views. The owner of this shop and the little satellite stores on the Upper East Side of Manhattan uh, had family who perished in the October 7th attack. And he uh, posted um his views in a flyer, and that he was donating proceeds to, I don't even remember which cause, and he hung Israeli flags in his window. So both of these businesses, the one in New York and the one in Chicago, have in essence politicized their businesses and demanded of their employees that they participate in the politics of the business. So I wanted to ask you, have you ever been asked by your employer to be part of a political effort? Has it ever been assumed that if you work there, your politics are the owner's politics or the majority of the employee's politics? And what do you do with that? What do you do if your employer says, well, you work here, so, you know, you're you're going to work here surrounded by political views with which you disagree. And what's more, a portion of the money that comes in that pays your salary is going to a cause you don't believe in. Customers. Customers have the right to, to say, you know what? Screw you and your Closing for Palestine Day, I'm never buying another book here as long as I live. Or up yours, you Israel Zionist supporters, I'm never getting another cup of coffee here as long as I live. I mean, certainly as a customer, you can do that. And as an owner, business owner, privately, you can do that. And theoretically, as a business owner, you have somewhat of a right to say, I'm going to run my business anyway. I, I mean, you've heard this a million times I'm going to run my business anyway I want within certain laws but is that wise is that right or to quote a friend of mine just because you can doesn't mean you should here's the phone number to text or to call 773763wcpt that's 7737639278 I can tell you a couple of stories. I, I have a friend, old, dear, beloved friend. And as you know, I'm kind of the token moderate Democrat of WCPT. I'm more in the middle than a lot of people around here. And I have a lot of good friends. I'm not saying that the, that the liberal hosts here don't, but it happens, um, not, not correlated in any way with my personal politics, but it happens I have a lot of friends of varying political stripes including the old-school Republican political stripe. So one of my oldest and dearest and most beloved friends was working, um, not surprisingly, worked at a TV radio network, and he came in to work the morning after Hillary Clinton lost the election. And the whole place, he reported to me, was basically draped in black crepe, And people were walking around saying horrible things about Republicans writ large. And he felt that... He was personally being attacked for his political views because the presumption, um, it happened that the general manager of the station and the vice president of the company were, were women and, and Democrats, and they just assumed that everybody in the place felt just as they did. And so their default setting was, you must be miserable. Republicans are evil. Let's just talk about it all over the radio station and the TV station. And he felt horrible. And that wasn't even an official position of the company. So he's telling me about this and I'm listening and I can feel that you know he's he's a good guy and and to be portrayed as, and this was before actually the the horrors of the Donald Trump presidency and I think he would he would in some senses agree with that characterization of the Donald Trump presidency he was no fan but He was a Republican and is a Republican, and uh, his wife and his kids and his ex-wife are all Democrats, and he's the lone standing guy. And he was really—I he heard him, his voice was shaking when he reported this to me, that he had been basically vilified at his place of business. So I had two things to say to him about that. Thing one— You just experienced a hostile work environment. That's what is meant by a hostile work environment where you are made to feel wrong or bad or like you don't belong just for being who you are or believing the things that you privately believe. You are made to feel unwelcome. You are made, you are characterized as something evil and bad openly and flagrantly. That's a hostile work environment, I said to him. And and I'm sorry that you went through it. And the second thing I said to him, probably wasn't as nice. I said, you're a cisgendered white male. Welcome to the world the rest of us live in most of the time. This is what this feels like. Remember this feeling. This is a feeling that a lot of people carry around with them a lot of the time. If you worked in that Chicago bookstore that closed for a day in solidarity with Palestinian women and children and you happened to feel also kindly disposed toward Israeli women and children, how would you feel about coming into work at that bookstore? If you were a person who was deeply troubled by the Hamas Israel war, and perhaps in New York City, you had relatives in Gaza. How would you feel about having the owner of your coffee coffee shop hanging pro-Israel slogans and flags all over the place? How would that how would that be for you? My guess is not so great. Not so great. Again, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So has this ever happened to you where you've worked someplace where it's just assumed? I can think of a number of talk radio stations right now that have a strong political viewpoint. Someone who works here said, you know, I understood when I came to WCPT that there was going to be a lot of left-wing politics around me and, and I can flow with that. And the same person, not to name names, said, you know, I couldn't work for one of these right-wing stations. It's a bridge too far for me. But even then, you know going in. You go work for one of the talk stations around the corner from us. You know, you know what people are going to be saying every day. Will they be expecting you to espouse those views? Probably not. But you might feel a little uncomfortable working around the people who do. But that is the nature of the business when you go in there. When you show up to work there, you know it's a political undertaking. I mean to carry the, the the example to extreme, if you went to work for um the Democratic Party, you you wouldn't feel like uh it's it's wrong that most of the people around you are espousing liberal or democratic or progressive views. You would understand that, that that's the place you're working. If you're someone who can't drink coffee, you you wouldn't be offended by people drinking coffee if you worked in a coffee shop. You know what to expect. But if you work in a coffee shop, you might have a reasonable expectation that you can work there without having to essentially by your presence be assumed to espouse certain political points of view. It's a coffee shop. Bookstore, same deal. There are plenty of books written supporting Palestine, written supporting Palestinians, written supporting that cause. Also, plenty of books detailing the history of Zionism, detailing the history of Israel. In a bookstore, supposedly, all of that in a good bookstore is going to be represented, although, although not always. I'll give you another example. There is... In Oakland, California, I I don't know if it's still open. This is the story is a few years old. Um, It is a black-owned and black-themed and black-focused bookstore. And a friend of mine, a friend of mine wrote, and I recommend this book to you. It's called Family Properties and it focuses on um, race and redlining and contract sales in the city of Chicago. And... It is, it is written by a historian, head of the history department at Rutgers, Newark. She's from Chicago. She had a family connection to this issue. She wrote a book that got all kinds of accolades and awards, a Carnegie grant, a Guggenheim award. And she was speaking around the country when her book first came out about the unfair treatment of black people. As they came up and tried to buy homes in Chicago and how that mechanism worked and all of the things that were set up to keep them from accomplishing um, the biggest tool we have in America or have had for financial progress, homeownership. So she's speaking around the country and this black-themed, black-owned bookstore arranged for her to come and give a book talk. And then they discovered she was white And so they disinvited her and they said they rescinded her invitation. They said, we are a black owned and black themed bookstore and all of the people who come to speak in our bookstore are people of color. So you're not welcome. And I asked her how she felt about that and she said, you know, that's the mission of that store. That's how they're set up to operate. I am not offended I understand. You know, it, it makes sense. that that's their, that's the way they operate, and that's their, their. I don't even know what the word would be. Their protocol. Okay. So I'm, I'm saying here that there are situations where you know or will be told that you must espouse a political view or be a certain person. And it's, you know, it's a private thing. You can discriminate in a way. You're not a public accommodation. You're not taking government money. You're not funding. You're not seeking federal grants. Fair enough. But is it fair to expect your workers to espouse a particular political point of view? And while we're on the subject, do you make your buying decisions? Like if this bookstore in Chicago... This bookstore in Chicago, are are you, um, if you found out which one it was, and it wouldn't be hard for you to find out which one it was, would that affect your buying decision? Would you say, great, they closed in their in-person browsing for a day on behalf of Palestinian women and children, they didn't say anything about Israeli women and children, perfect, I'm going to shop there, I'm going to make a trip from wherever I live just to shop there and support that. Or would you, by extension, say, you know what? I have always been a customer there, but that's that's not something I can support. I support um, being there for all women and children. And if this is their viewpoint, I'm not shopping there anymore. They They want to sell books. They can sell books to a smaller universe of people, not me. The person I know on Facebook said she'd been a customer there for decades and she would be sorry to say goodbye to them, but that was the end for her. John is texting in. I've often worked with Republicans. They understood that this is America and they could not discriminate against a Democrat. I will tell you my democratic leanings held me back in terms of promotions, but I didn't pair, care. I still got paid, but I kept my views to myself. Well, it's a little bit of a of a murky area. I mean, if if your politics kept you from being promoted, but you kept your views to yourself, how did, I mean, how do they know? Did they expect you to espouse Republican views to advance? That's an interesting point John raises right there. We'll, apply, we'll, we'll employ you to do certain things, but if you really want to move up in this company. It's funny. I I sometimes don't even realize, and you may not even realize, how you reflexively make decisions. There is a particular company based in right at the Illinois-Wisconsin line. I'm sure you know who they are. If you buy office supplies or filing things or any of that stuff, that big catalog that comes out. And they were trying to hire people during and post-COVID. And they were touting their benefits and all the great things that they do. And it happens that the owners of this company, its family company, I don't know if they're publicly traded, are some of the biggest donors to some of the most right-wing people in the world. They are the, they're up there with the Koch brothers, maybe even past them at this point. And I thought to myself, I'd have to be pretty hard up. Even want to drive a truck to help enrich these people, but then again, I'm not pretty hard up. So, could you do that? I'm looking at the phone here, Paul. What am I seeing? Take a break. Ah, we will take your calls and texts. Um, Have you ever had your workplace become politically hostile to you? Would you work in a place with politics that were overt, that were not yours? 773-763-WCPT. You can call or text. I'm Tori Ryder. In for Joan Esposito.
0: Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. on WCPT 820.
1: Welcome to the day after Thanksgiving. Yes, you'll be uh, informed shortly how you can spend some of your shopping budget locally and support local businesses. But at the moment, if you're just joining us... The question for you is if you've ever been punished, if you've ever felt ill effects from your politics at work. And um by extension, uh what do you make of this Chicago bookstore that took a day off with donating its its um its profits to uh Palestinian women and children and nobody else's women and children, or the New York book, uh, coffee shop that um, claims that they are, are uh, being punished for their support of Israel. And some of the workers are like, wait a minute, you know, I'm being forced to do this, and and I don't want to do this. Andrew in Naperville, you have a story to tell us.
2: Yes. Um, a long time ago, I think this was the early 90s, I was working in a school, in uh, West New York, in New Jersey. And the owner of the school was a Cuban immigrant who, um, and like most Cuban immigrants living in the U.S., he was uh, very bitter towards Fidel Castro. And I think he overcompensated by the way he treated his employees. That means uh, Fidel Castro was in favor or his philosophy was in favor of the worker he uh in return uh paid his workers very poorly. Um he exploited his workers or at least really ex- exploited me by asking to do things with didn't have things anything to do with teaching. And uh during one meeting I I called him on it and needless to say he he was uh he was very peeved, and were these uh,
1: political things he was asking you to do like um show up at a not, rally not, not, or? Not, not,
2: no no, they weren't political things, but they were uh they they were they were explo- exploitive things things uh things you might ask an employee to do uh in Latin america because uh the, i don 't know the laws protecting like OSHA protecting workers or protecting workers' rights the United States are much stronger um he didn't uh, he didn't see these uh he didn't pay much heed to these laws
1: so so was- did did you um uh, did you understand just from watching him that this was what he understood America to be, that because you were here, the politics of America are that you can exploit workers, because that's actually, as you just pointed out, n- not legal in many instances. Did he draw that connection that I've left communist Cuba just so that I can run my business uh, and treat my workers any way I want? Did he, did he actually
2: Well, I, those I I, I, I I made a connection, and uh, I think my connection was uh, pretty well-founded that um, th- this wasn't a school, this wasn't a public school. And um, part of the conservative uh, belief, or me, uh, do, they don't like a lot of bureaucracy interfering with the rights of businesses. And he wanted to run his company the way he wanted to run his company. And I think a lot of his unconsciously more consciously, a lot of his beliefs or a lot of his passion uh, about having to move out of his country seeped into uh, how he how he ran his business or how he treated his workers. Well,
1: that's interesting. I'll have to give that some thought. And thank you very much for calling. Appreciate it. Um, I, I'm not... I'm not sure if that's an explicit hostile work environment because of your politics, but I can I can see how um, if you come from a communist country and you come here and you're told your cap this is a this is a different political system, business owners have more rights here that you, you might interpret that as uh, I can treat my workers as I wish. Uh, of course, you would, in in many cases, run smack, as our caller pointed out, as Andrew pointed out, smack into our labor laws. And even though we're not a communist country, we have some. And thank goodness for Joe Biden, who is uh, doing his best to fully enforce them. Because, as you know, if you get an unfriendly president, it doesn't matter what's on the books. If it doesn't get enforced, good luck to ya. It's just about 2.30. I'm Tory Ryder. In a moment, while we're on the subject, uh, is there such a thing as right-wing populism? You're going to literally meet someone who wrote the book on that. Um, covers a lot of labor issues, covers, uh, he's straight out of Detroit, Wayne State, knows, knows how it is for, for workers and, uh, has some, has blown some holes in the idea that there's such a thing as right-wing populism. You'll meet him in a moment on WCPT. I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan Esposito.
3: At Ulta Beauty's Black Friday sale, I get up to 50% off all week long on over 275 can't-miss deals. Starting November 19th, shop 40% off stunning Morphe eyeshadow palettes and 50% off select Tula skincare products. Plus, starting Tuesday, shop $12 mascaras from brands like Tarte, Benefit, and Fenty. And $12 lippies from brands like Lancome and Kylie Cosmetics. Hurry in store or place your online pickup order today. Ulta Beauty, the possibilities are beautiful.
4: Hello, fellow progressives. Attorney Tony Moray here. I want to thank all the WCPT listeners who have put their trust in me. I know that nothing is more important to you than your family, and it is an honor to be trusted to help carry out your wishes. Planning your estate can seem overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be. My 30 years of experience will help guide you through this very important process to help preserve your family legacy. Whether it is drafting a living trust or a will, I will be with you every step of the way. In my practice, facts matter, so advertising on WCPT has been a perfect fit. We can get things started if you call me at 847-996-0496. The initial meeting is completely free, and there's no obligation. All it takes is one phone call. My website is moraylawoffice.com. That's Moray spelled M-O-R-E-E. As they say, sometimes the first step is the hardest. But all you need to do is call me at 847-996-0496 nine cents
0: you're listening to wcpt 820 here's the latest chicago weather update
4: from the weatherology weather center i'm meteorologist paul Frombley. a blend of clouds and sun this afternoon with daytime highs approaching 35 winds out of the north 8 to 15 miles per hour Lows level off around 28 tonight, overcast skies. High temperatures reach up to 37 tomorrow, overcast. Daytime highs approaching 35, Sunday, with a chance for snow. 29, partly cloudy, Monday. About an inch of snow tomorrow night through Sunday. That's your latest Chicago weather update. Right now,
0: 35. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: Two thirty-three. We are Chicago's Progressive Talk, live, local, and progressive. I'm Turi Ryder. That's Turi with you, Ryder. Like the truck in for Joan Esposito, and I will be in tomorrow for Edwin Eisendrath at one. So we'll we'll see you then too. If you're if you're still shopping and you need a break, you can spend it here um, on Chicago's Progressive Talk. Is there such a thing as right-wing populism? I would like to introduce you to. Dr. Steve Babson, he wrote a book called Forgotten Populists, When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy. And according to Steve Babson, right-wing populism is an oxymoron, which might come as news to people who characterize Donald Trump's followers that way. Welcome, Dr. Babson. Thanks for joining us on WCPT.
5: It's a pleasure being here, and happy thanksgiving
1: thank you i'm i've we've got leftovers. How about you?
5: Uh, more than I need really. uh,
1: yeah, it's a lucky thing. We're very fortunate. So tell me about the genesis of this book um and and what you think when you look at this description of Donald Trump as leading a populist movement why Why is that an oxymoron?
5: Well, it's an evasion, really, because it has nothing to do with who the historical and actual populists were. Uh, And many people might not be aware of this, but actually there was a populist party in the United States back in the 1890s. This is 130 years ago. And I would argue this is of interest and that people might find the book something worth looking at, because actually that party changed the political terrain in the United States in ways that— shaped it uh, up to the present day. And the populists were what we would call a progressive party. Um, They were calling for change in the 1890s when farmers and railroad workers and coal miners and a wide range of reformers uh, wanted to launch a new movement that would change uh, the political terrain of this country. Uh, Its official name was the People's Party, but they called themselves populists as a kind of shorthand. And, And what they were angry about was the way that both the Democrats and the Republicans Favored the rising class of corporate robber barons who come to power after the Civil War using violence, bribery, and and the monopoly power of their huge corporations uh, to crush opponents of big business. And the populace wanted actually to install a different kind of market economy, one that was built built on co-ops, Uh, and accepted collective organization by farmers and workers on behalf of their broader interests, not just serving the interests of the ruling elite, uh, the robber baron.
1: Well, let me let me let me pause you there and ask, Okay, there are some people listening who would say, well, but that's communism. So what's the difference?
5: Populists wanted actually a market economy. They wanted a different kind of capitalism, uh, one in which, uh, corporate power could not be used to to crush small-time entrepreneurs, honest entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs as the populace called them, uh, and farmers and workers. They wanted an economy that would be regulated on behalf of the widest possible access to the market. So, for example, farmers were not opposed to railroads. Farmers had actually uh, voted in favor of, a of massive public subsidies to build the railroads in the first place. But the railroads then operated in abusive manners using their monopoly power to basically price gouge farmers who, in Kansas, if they wanted to ship their corn to market in 1893 and 1894 in Chicago, it cost more to ship that corn by freight than the corn would actually fetch on the marketplace in Chicago. And so a lot of farmers in that desperate year of massive depression at that time were actually burning their corn as fuel. uh, And I guess eating a lot of popcorn, but they were desperately (laughs) poor. And they wanted uh, to regulate those railroads who had been gifted enormous amounts of public subsidies, including, by the way, people might not be aware of this, but the railroads were gifted 170 million acres of federal land free given to them to subsidize the construction of those railroads. That's the size of the state of Texas. And the populace were saying, well, if they were built with public resources, they should be run for the public benefit. That that Uh, is still
1: uh, that, that is still an argument that that is being made today by some people. So what is the legacy of this? Uh, if you're going, I mean, I, I can I can think of some examples like when we bailed out Chrysler, and you know, the, when we support uh, various industries with tax incentives, and when we've gone, you know, after some of the corporate tax evasion. But what is the legacy, or or is it gone completely? Um, is the Democrat Farm Labor Party, for example, in Minnesota, no longer Farm and Labor, just Democrat? What's what's left? Of the well, populace. it's not enough farm
5: and labor, uh, but uh, basically what, what uh, the legacy of the populace is that they were the ones who pioneered a progressive agenda, that, including, for example, voting rights for women, uh, which were constant, was constitutionally barred at that time. They supported voting access for black uh, farmers in the South. They wanted a multiracial movement of white and black farmers in the South. Uh, they wanted regulations to curb the worst abuses of big business. They wanted an income tax on the rich an expansion of affordable credit by ending the gold standard. They wanted things that would actually aid the widest number of people. And that was a big tent, a big reform tent. There were Christian socialists there. There were people who later ended up in the Socialist Party. A lot of people ended up in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And later, some of these reforms were won during the New Deal. So it's a a very important historical legacy and one that we need to be aware of because today, too often, populism is simply evoked as something kind of dangerous a little bit untrustworthy and in fact often enough it's used as a label to describe Donald Trump uh, with that kind of sly pejorative and I would argue that's a huge evasion that it's not only wrong but it's a way of avoiding actually describing Trump for what he is which is he's a a demagogue, an authoritarian. And let's be clear, he's a budding fascist. And that's what needs to be said about him.
1: I, I will not argue with any of that. I'm I'm right on it. Um, let me ask you about the early days of, of these People's Party populists. Was there violence involved in them making their case before the public? How did they make their case? And how did they come to be incorporated into the progressive wing of the Democratic Party as opposed to other parties?
5: They, they, they were advocates of political action and and de- denounced any effort at violent action. They were the victims of violent action often and off, particularly in the South, uh, where the Jim Crow uh, white power regime uh, basically retaliated against their effort to build a black and white unified farmer movement uh, with assassination, with vote theft, with uh, terrorism, with boycotts, and, um, That was the real violence, was was actually what was meted out towards them. Likewise, any group of workers, and there were coal miners and railroad workers who were very strong supporters of the populace, uh, including Eugene Debs in Chicago, along with Clarence Darrow uh, on the streets of Chicago in 1894, arguing for the populist cause. And they actually successfully brought about a, a gradual change in our politics. And it started with the Democrats in 1896 when William Jennings Bryan uh, co-opted part of the – he did a sort of outflanking movement on the populace. Up until then, the Democrats had been just like the Republicans supporting the robber barons, but they adopted part of the populist program, and the populace then endorsed Bryan to avoid splitting the reform, reform vote. And, of course, they abandoned their independent voice at that moment. So, but it began a change in the Democratic Party from then on. There was a a growing progressive wing in the Democratic Party. By the way, even in the Republican Party, they could see that many of their voters were also favorably disposed toward the populist program. And some of these Republicans, and this is probably hard for contemporary listeners to understand, but some of them called themselves liberal Republicans. Talk about an oxymoron—that's one right there. Well, you wouldn't see
1: that very much now. It's—it's it's quite something to to see the calcification of both parties in regard to uh, supporting wage workers and those below the wage worker uh, and people trying to make a living just with with the work that they do every day, every week, every year. There, there's not much advocacy for those people in the republican party and yet and yet those are the people who put donald trump in office can you can you talk a little bit about that how that happened how don how did donald trump budding fascist convince working people that they were somehow being harmed by the democratic party and the progressive wing in particular of that party
5: well in particular uh because I think the Democratic Party abandoned working people and farmers uh, and moved in a direction of soliciting uh, big money donors and lobbyists uh, and responding to the pressure of corporate elites uh for deregulation and a free trade and the free trade agreement, NAFTA with Mexico and so on. This, this goes back to Bill Clinton. Oh my gosh. Uh, I got
1: to just pause you there. I got in so much. I was on the air in Minnesota when Clinton was pushing NAFTA and they sent people around and I, I didn't usually have guests. I was filling in for someone who did and they had the big Clinton NAFTA pimp come and talk to me and he's trying to explain how this is going to be great for American workers. And I said, this this makes no sense. If you can set up your manufacturing company in Mexico, filth up their environment, pay their people a tenth of what the Detroit auto workers make for building cars, how's that good for us? And he say, he kept saying, well, you just don't understand. And I said, well, you know, if if I just don't understand, maybe that's not because I'm stupid. Maybe it's because it makes no sense. And we're yeah, – done- you,
5: you had it right. You had it right. And not only that, under NAFTA, we were shipping subsidized corn down to Mexico – which destroyed the farm economy down there. And that's where all those unemployed folk uh, ended up having nowhere else to go but north to try and work in the United States.
1: Right. Okay. So let's talk about how the Democratic Party in some instances, I mean, I would, I would posit that it's still the most favorably disposed toward working people of the two parties. And I don't think a third party is as workable as anything other than a spoiler. That's my opinion now, but um, what, what, happened. It was Clinton. It was NAFTA, you think, that destroyed the the uh, liberal progressive um, base of the Democratic Party and drove them to the Republicans. Is that what did it?
5: Partly, partly. It was also the Freedom to Farm Act, which deregulated farming, and now what we have is these huge agribusiness corporations that dominate the farm terrain. Uh, and back back in the 1890s, by the way, 40% of the working population, a little, little bit more, were farmers or farm workers. Today, it's 2%. So the world has changed dramatically. Um, and what we have to be about is looking for ways of rebuilding a coalition Uh, And within the Democratic Party, I I agree with you, by the way, a third party is not feasible. They had to do it in the 1890s because there was no presidential primary at that time. And so party bosses could organize a convention that marginalized any alternative voices. Now, today, there is much more a wider terrain within the parties. And I think it makes sense to fight for these positions within the Democratic Party. Um, It's a tough fight. But I believe that's that's where we should be going. Uh, and we have to do that by rebuilding programs that address the needs of working people uh, and the remaining farm population in rural America, which has been abandoned.
1: Ah, let's talk about that for a second, because it, it's fascinating to a lot of people how the remaining small farmers or sized farmers seem to believe that uh, uh, the Republican Party, has their best interests at heart when it is consistently the democratic party that has supported uh price supports buying food for uh programs like school lunches and senior you know the uh, things that the, that the government pays them to do. Uh, and yet somehow they see themselves as more ideologically allied with the Republican Party, in my opinion, completely against their best interests. What What is going on there? And am I just completely
5: nuts? <laughs> uh, well, what I would first thing I would say is that it's a mistake to regard farmers as some monolithic uh, constituency that is unvaried in its opinion and feelings. Okay. There's a wide range of possibilities among what is, again, a very diminished population. It's now down to about 2% of the working population. Uh, and some of them are small family farmers trying to eke out a living. And if you talk to them about price supports, they might be much more favorable than you would think. Uh, many of them have been reduced to contractors, where they're no longer an independent farmer in the way we think of it. They're contracted to Tyson Foods and other major agribusiness corporations, and they're kept on a really short choke collar in terms of the price they'll be paid, barely covering costs, uh, with very little in the way of a margin for that contractor. And so they become, in effect, Kind of contract slaves of agribusiness, and and they are a completely different circumstance from what you would expect if you think about independent farmers, like are pictured on you know the covers of various food products. Yeah. Uh, and then there are of course wait, wait, I'm going
1: to hold you up there. You're you're right. There is no American Gothic anymore, and I want to talk more about this with you, and also about the um the the rebirth of the farm co-op, which I I happen to know only a tiny bit about, but I, but I want to talk to you about that some more. As well. Um, So if you can stand by, we'll resume conversation in a moment. You're listening to Dr. Steve Babson. He's the author of Forgotten Populists, um, which seems like it would really apply right now. You're listening to Joan Esposito's show, WCPT Chicago, live local progressive.
0: Joan Esposito, live local and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: 249. I'm Turi Ryder in for Joan Esposito. If you want to track me when I'm not here in front of the WCVT microphone, you can do that on my socials, Facebook. I'm kind of avoiding X these days for the obvious reasons. I'm looking at you, Elon Musk, uh, but I'm there. And uh, also, yes, I, I did write that book. And yes, now it's an audiobook, So you can keep that with you. You can download it on Audible and you can have it with you when you come back home from your Thanksgiving vacation if you're driving or flying it's hours and hours out of my life i'll never get back we're talking to, i we were well spent every minute of it dr steve babson the author of forgotten populists is with us talking about whether there is such a thing as right wing populism we'll get to that in just a second i want to talk to you about the possible rebirth of the cooperative farm uh, movement i know I, I know somebody in texas who is um trying and and with support of their right-wing governor putting together um, a, a beef growers co-op uh, where everything from where they grow, where they raise the cattle to um, putting a daycare center adjacent to the slaughterhouse is going to be owned by the co-op participants. Um, is that something we're seeing more of, uh, workers coming together, buying cooperatively, supporting co-ops, or, or is that just this one instance that I'm aware of? Well,
5: actually, it's got a long history. Uh, and the the populace, their first uh, social base, was the Farmers' Alliance and Cooperative Union. And that's what they were about, was promoting the idea that private initiatives in a market economy can also be collective. Yeah, I'm it just asking
1: if that's coming back into, into the forefront, because I think it's sort of faded out over time. As you pointed out, these big agribusinesses bought up these farms, and then why belong to a co-op? You're owned by, or you're beholden to Tyson Foods. Are you seeing any signs that the, that the, the growers and producers of our food are moving the other way, or, or no?
5: I mean I think it's moving in a lot of different directions, and I, what i what I was going to get at was that what happened is that as agribusiness has grown in scale, co-ops have also grown in scale uh. and co-ops have never never they've always been a part of the agricultural economy um, but The question is, are they going to be organized on behalf of the farmer members, or are they going to be organized on behalf of their clients, Uh. the the people they supply? And you can can look at a a lot of different examples. I'll just take two that I'm aware of. One is the Dairy Farmers of America, which is a massive cooperative. Uh, It now matches the scale of the corporations the processors to whom it sells the product and it's run by basically men who move from one side of that ledger to the other um, and basically operate on behalf of minimizing the costs to the processors and dfa dairy farmers of america owns some of the processing plants so they actually have and this is what many farmer members argue and it's been in court and it's been debated is that sometimes These uh, top executives of these massive co-ops act on behalf of actually suppressing the price that farmer members can actually get. That's so Uh, interesting
1: because um, as a member of a labor union, um, a a different version of that is who can serve on the negotiating committee. And the standards of who can serve on behalf of the workers are very clear. If you have hiring and firing power, you're management. You're not a worker anymore. But it sounds like these co-ops have no such standards.
5: Well, it it gets really murky. Uh, You want a co-op that has enough scale to actually be able to exert uh, marketplace power. But once that scale reaches a certain point, it's no longer farmers who are running it. Um, And then you have to have a democratic process that can impose the interests of farmers on those uh, employees who are at the top of the pyramid. And that. Maybe has not happened in the case of the Dairy Farmers of America. Well, so, I, I would an, say another example. we're uh,
1: seeing, we're seeing a little bit of what you're describing coming back the other way. I would argue in the auto workers union that in this recent right. strike. They, they threw out a corrupt leadership and they returned the power to the people. And, and I think if you want to know what happens when you throw off these, uh, these, Elected Supposedly elected officials who are not really working in your interest. You, you've you just seen an example of the results you can get. You had a second example?
5: Uh, well, well it just by the way, in that point you just made, and they had to change the way that leadership was selected for that to be uh, carried out. Yes. And that's an important point that you made there. Uh, the other one would be some uh, co-op like Organic Valley. Uh, In in Wisconsin, it's a it's a smaller scale, but it's still substantial scale. And there's still considerable input from the farmer members in terms of determining where that co-op is going to go. And I'm thinking of a town called Westby, Wisconsin, a beautiful part of Wisconsin, by the way, on the western side of it, uh, close to the Mississippi. And there the town economy has, you know, the co-op owned dairy. Uh, The uh, co-op-owned electric utility uh, dating back to the 1930s, Uh, a co-op-owned telephone company. Um, And they're all small scale, and they're basically run on behalf of those local residents. And I find that a very appealing model. It's not the only model I would uh, opt for, but... Uh, it's very much, I think, an alternative that we should be considering and trying to support through government action.
1: You just made me want to go visit Westby, Wisconsin, which I'd never heard of in my life before. So thank you for that. Let's talk now with, uh, with the minutes that we have left about this oxymoron of right wing populism. What are the tools that we have to get through to these to folks if, if it can be done at all? to point out that that the Donald Trumps of the world are not really looking out for them?
5: Well, programs that are credible and are being presented in a way that enlists the support of working people, uh, farmers and uh, wage workers. Uh, and I think that, that means that we have to reorient ourselves away from a party that seeks out You know, support from Jeff Bezos uh, as if, you know, contributions alone and TV time uh, is going to make the difference. TV time is important. Money does talk in our current political system. But I think what people are what people miss and no longer find uh, as often as we need to make it is a party that comes to your door, talks with you at your doorstep. Uh, talks to you in local meetings, has programs and possibilities that uh, will widen your sense of what's possible in the future. And that sort of face-to-face grassroots organization is what we now lack. It's partly because of uh, how unions have been abused over the years, and sometimes unions have also fumbled and gone the wrong way. But we need more of that sort of grassroots organization through co-ops and unions, neighborhood organizations, door-knocking, canvassing, as well as a media strategy, but not that alone.
1: I I love hearing you say that. I come from, um, part of my family are very active as uh, organizers, and uh, I will, full disclosure here, my spouse uh, began. Man as an organizer and first paid employee of Paul Wellstone of Minnesota, so I'm glad to hear you say that that's a path forward. Um, but I I also uh, want to ask you about international policy. What what I'm seeing in a way in both parties um, is a conversation now that is only being held at a national level and not at the local level, about why our foreign policy matters um, in the micro as well as in the macro. Is there a place for that in in real populism?
5: I think so. Uh, and again, you know, I'm an historian, so my first step will be, uh, you know, back to the 1890s when the populists uh, were confronted by a major foreign policy crisis, and that was the Spanish-American War uh, in 1898. And the populace initially supported the U.S. intervening in the case of Cuba and, the, and Puerto Rico and the Philippines, where people were revolting against the, the Spanish Empire and the colonial domination of those three places. And the populace supported it because they saw these as wars of liberation. But after the U.S. military intervention helped turn the tide, The U.S. turned the other way, and in the case of the Philippines, overthrew the provisional revolutionary government of the local people, destroyed their army, organized the countryside into concentration camps, killed some—the estimates vary, but somewhere between 300,000 and a million people died as a result of this— Strategic hamlets uh, strategy of the U.S. and the Philippines, and the populists came out and dramatically opposed annexation, which is what the U.S. did. They annexed the Philippines as a colony. So, so, so I with,
1: think- I'm sorry. With the so with the few seconds that we have available, then would you say that the populists are uh, necessity isolationists or, or not?
5: No, no, no. They were very much in favor of supporting. Uh, groups of people fighting for their own liberation. Right. The
1: Historically, but now, now is what I'm asking you.
5: I, well, uh, you know, I, I don't use the term populism now. I think it's an historical term, I and see. I think we should be talking about progressives. Okay. Uh, I think we, I think I we got where the...
1: we needed to go because you make that distinction and you make it in your book, and I will recommend for people to take a look at it. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. I'm I'm really grateful. And your book, Uh, Forgotten populists, When Farmers Turned Left to Say Democracy, published by Mission Point Press in Michigan, I think makes all of those points, and I appreciate you laying them out for us on the Joan Esposito Show. Thank you. Thank you very much. My my pleasure. Dr. Steve Babson, in a minute, we're going to talk with an expert about what we can expect from the um, Gaza-Israel-Hamas- hostage swap and uh, uh, this is this is all happening now as you listen so more of that in a moment on
0: WcPT Chicago's progressive talk WCPT 820 where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820.
1: 305, The Joan Esposito Show. I am Tory Rider. That's Tory with You. Rider, Mike the Truck, in for Joan. Who are the hostages being released? What can we expect? Uh, if you're following the conflict between Israel and Hamas, Uh, The report is that uh, there were 10 um, Thai, I believe, uh, hostages released today and one Filipino citizen, uh, 13 Israeli women and children uh, up to age 85, mostly from the kibbutz that was on the border, where a majority of the Uh, bloodletting in the October 7th initial attack that precipitated all of this uh, occurred. So what should we make of all this? What can we expect in the future? How do the hostage releases happen and what gets uh, handled when it does? With us now, uh, Professor James Gelvin. He's professor of Modern Middle East History at UCLA Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Galvin. Um, I'm just grateful for all of the insight you can give us about what's just happened and what you think may happen next.
6: Well, what just happened was uh, a prisoner exchange. Yes. Uh, the, Israeli, the Israelis uh, are, are about to release up to 150 Palestinian prisoners, and the Palestinians are going to release approximately uh, 50 Prisoners. I misspoke when I said Palestinians. I mean Hamas. Yes, which is one of the factions that's ruling Gaza.
1: Um, is is it clear yet um, whether Hamas has all of the hostages? It was my understanding that several of them are being held um, in by other groups and that one of the things that was supposed to happen was an accounting of who's alive and proof of life. I understand that the Red Crescent has bailed out on um, uh, checking on the welfare of the missing people. Can, can you offer any insight there?
6: Uh, no, I can't. Uh, and I don't think anybody who is outside the negotiations team uh, can. Uh, obviously, this whole thing has been extraordinarily secretive. Uh, nobody is talking on either side. It's uh, sort of very tenuous. So uh, the hours the that be have been extraordinarily discreet in this. We do know that the Israelis are involved, that Moss is involved, uh, and that they're involved through intermediaries of the United States and Qatar.
1: Yes. Uh, the professor. Uh, President Biden has said, and I believe this is a quote, we will not stop until all of the hostages are returned. Um, As you watch this unfold, and with the benefit of your experience, what kinds of things are typical stumbling blocks in a process like this?
6: Well, it's a breakdown of trust that's the biggest uh, stumbling block. Uh, These things are extremely delicate, and uh, they have to be done, again, through multiple layers, So you have, on the one hand, Hamas on the other hand, the Israelis, and you have the intermediaries, because not everybody talks to everybody else. So it took a while to do this sort of thing. Uh, We don't know exactly what is going on behind the scenes. We don't know how these numbers were reached. We don't know how the nationalities of the people that were being released by Hamas was was done. And we don't know what the future is going to be, because this is the first step, uh, that Netanyahu has put uh, the Israeli prime minister has put uh, terms on the table for the next stage, which would be that we will give a uh, for every ten prisoners we will give another day, a day yes. of a ceasefire. Yes, uh, we don't know if that's going to be acceptable. That's an opening negotiating bid, or what that is.
1: Yeah, it's, it, we were speaking um, a, a couple days ago with a someone who is a professional hostage negotiator, and and essentially. What you're referencing there is, is essentially an ex- a horrible pun. It's an exchange rate, what we're going to offer if, if you want to proceed with this. But to return to your your topic of trust, we've heard on the American side that there's, you know, you can't trust these people, you can't trust these people, you can't trust these people. And yet we have to trust these people. How... How does that happen? If you really have someone you can't trust, then what, what are you doing to ensure that they can be compelled to live up to their end of the agreement?
6: Well, nobody can really trust anybody else, in these sort of agreements, and that's what makes them so difficult. Uh, you can imagine, though, that Qatar, which is one of the big backers of, of Hamas, uh, is probably uh, making some promises behind the scenes as well. Uh, so we don't really know what what's going to happen in that sense. What sort uh, the of United States...
1: I'm sorry, what what sort of things might they be likely to be promising in in, in your experience?
6: Uh, money for uh, reconstruction, uh, money for day to day survival in uh, Gaza. And perhaps if it's reached that stage of. Uh, uh, asylum for leaders of Hamas. Ah. Uh, we don't really we don't really know what what is on the table at the present time. So, uh basically again this is stuff that has to go on, you know, in secret and um, we 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 will know these things but way down the line. Um, if you remember back to the Cuban missile crisis and the whole thing was I'm uh, not that, that old. States- I'm,
1: not, I'm not that old. <laughs>
6: Well, well, I am that old.
1: Okay. I
6: remember back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it was one of those heroic things that John Kennedy stared Nikita Khrushchev down. Yes. And what eventually came out, of course, was that the United States gave a whole bunch of concessions to get uh, Russian missiles out of Cuba. Yes. So um, this is something that at a certain point will come out, but at the present time, again, it's being held secret. and. A lot of this stuff, I mean, is is secrets that are uh, not stuff that that will be found out. I mean, the the Israelis themselves were caught very much off guard by the Hamas attack. Yes. And so um, they they, must not not Hamas, but a branch of Hamas called the al Qassam Brigades. the the militia of Hamas, was able to keep it not only from the Israelis, but able to keep knowledge of this from uh, the politicals in Hamas, but also from Iran as well. So these secrets do have a way of staying secret.
1: It's so interesting to hear you say that because my default setting is usually nobody keeps anything secret forever. Um, and I was really, truly shocked that they had been able to keep s- such a massive effort secret. Although we are now hearing that there were there were people trying to sound the alarm up the Israeli side saying something unusual is going on. I even saw an article saying that because the people who are the spotters who are issuing these warnings are primarily women serving the IDF, that they were dismissed and might they have been uh, given more attention if there were men in that capacity, which was a fascinating question question, and I, of course we, we will never know, um, but the fact that whether an alarm was raised, j- just like before 9-11 here, there were people jumping up and down saying, you know, we have a problem, we have a problem, and then the signal somehow got stuck and never made it up the line. Um, I wanted to ask you about about that, as, as far as whether you think that these things will... Um, leak in some way. But I also wanted to to ask you some more about your thought about the money that might be exchanged. Who would be paying money for hostages in a case like this? And do you think that we'll ever find out the truth of it?
6: Well, I don't think that things stay secret forever. Uh, I, I think that fundamentally what's going to happen is somewhere down the line, there's going to be an official inquiry that is going to come out or somewhere down the line, somebody is going to write a total book uh, and uh, things are going to start you know, snowballing from there. Uh-huh. But this is not the time for that. That's not going to happen now. Right. Who's going to pay the money? What is going to well, Qatar will probably pay the money. Um, Qatar is a very interesting place. It's probably the only country uh, besides Turkey which has uh, good relations with Hamas. Uh, Saudi Arabia certainly doesn't. Uh, Egypt, Egypt certainly doesn't. Uh, Qatar, during the uh, uprisings that took place, Qatar was the only country that uh, took the side of the various Muslim brotherhoods uh, throughout the region. And their idea was that, well, what we can do is we can ride this wave of Muslim brotherhoods or we can drown underneath it. And the idea was, for the Saudis, was, no, we we don't want any Muslim Brotherhood-type governments. We don't want any Hamas-type governments, because they give a bad signal as to how Muslims should participate in politics as Muslims. So, therefore, you know, uh, they, uh, the Saudis, are very anti-Hamas. Egypt is very anti-Hamas, because uh, the present leadership of Egypt, over a Muslim Brotherhood government, and so, you know, we have a, you know the Qataris racist being one of the few groups around the world that can actually talk to these people.
1: That's that's fascinating that you would say that that this is because of um, the way that these other governments see that Hamas, if active in their country, would affect the perception of Islam and the way that they could govern. And obviously, it's a given that Iran is is fond of Hamas, but we don't we don't deal with them either because, as a relative naive, as I sit here and look at this situation. It would seem, oh, well, the Qataris have good relations with Hamas because they're using that to leverage their position on the world stage to the West. But you're telling me it's got less to do with that and, and more about how they keep their own politics the way they want them. Is that what you're saying?
6: you got to understand Qatar is an extraordinarily small country which is bordered on two sides, actually, by extremely big countries, by Saudi Arabia on the one hand, and by uh, Iran on the other hand. What you have is a real problem here for the Qataris. How do we maintain our sovereignty? How do we maintain our ability to impose our policy? And so, therefore, uh, the Qataris, for example, have good communications with the Iranians. They share an undersea uh, oil field with the Iranians. Uh, The Qataris have good relations with Hamas and various other organizations. Let me just clarify something, though, about the Muslim Brotherhoods. When you say something as a Muslim Brotherhood-type organization, you're not really saying a lot. Because, for example, you had a Muslim Brotherhood president of Egypt uh, who was getting increasingly authoritarian until he was overthrown in 2013. But then you have the Muslim Brotherhood-type government of uh, Tunisia that, when it met with opposition from an entrenched state said, okay. what we're going to do is we're going to continue the democratic experiment. We're going to resign from office and hold new elections. So we see this thing in a whole variety of forms. So
1: it could be more dictatorial or it could be more democratic, depending on the setting and and the country where it's operating, is what you're telling me.
6: Exactly, and the first groupings that were uh, in Palestine, for example, cut their teeth during the uh, rebellion of the uh, Palestinian population against Zionist immigration and the British in the 1930s. Uh, so uh, this is sort of ingrained into the DNA. This uh, what what they think of as anti-imperialism, uh, anti-Zionism is ingrained in the DNA of uh, the uh, mosques. Uh, and um, uh, when uh, Muslim Brotherhood type organization uh, took power in Gaza Strip, they brought with it all the sort of baggage that they had accumulated historically.
1: What, what about this, this, I think, canard where they say, oh, we don't we're not anti-Jewish. We're just anti-Zionist. Does that do they even bother with that in, in the Middle East I, or is, is that just for the West?
6: Well, let's look at it in terms of Hamas, okay? It's actually very interesting. They have two charters, one of which was the original charter of 1987 or 88, and the other one was the uh, revised charter of 2017. In the first charter, there were the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Yes. Uh, You know, this anti-Semitic forgery. Yes. um, That came out of Imperial Russia, uh, and they quote from that. Uh, And in the second one, what they talk about is um, that we have not inherited the European disease of anti-Semitism. So in the second one, they also say that we want a Palestine from the river to the sea with Jerusalem as its capital. Uh, and they also say in the same document that we will agree with a national consensus, which is uh, Palestine next to Israel with Jerusalem as its capital. So there's a great deal of ambiguity of what what these guys are capable of doing what they want. If you remember back to the PLO, though, well, the PLO wait, hold, hold, up a, off,
1: hold up a second, because okay, sure. the Al the Qassam Brigade, there, whatever. I, I always get the name right. a little bit off. They're operating under a very clearly stated goal. Um, they've been all over media said, and they have not been quoting ambiguously. They've been saying that they have a particularly clear agenda. Would you Would you agree with that? It's less about what the charter says and more about what the people with the guns are saying at this point.
6: Uh, I don't really agree with that and simply because, you know, basically we're in the heat of the conflict right now. Obviously, what they're trying to do is to, to uh, dig out a maximalist position. Um, You know, I mean, one of the things that's going on now is that uh, Hamas has become an international player. Well,
1: aren't we in the the heat of battle right now because they have that position?
6: Well, that may or may not be true. We don't really know what what the position is. We don't really know, for example, why they launched the attack. Now, whenever we can look historically at Palestinian factions, why they launch attacks, when they launch attacks. And there are three reasons why Palestinian factions have launched attacks historically. The first one is to keep the Palestine question on the front burner of international politics and they've certainly Hamas has certainly done that. Yes. Second is to sabotage any sorts of agreements that would, in their view, sell out the Palestinians. And, uh, the Abraham Accords, uh, through normalization of relations between various countries in the Middle East, uh, certainly did that in the same way that there was this warming of relations between Saudi Arabia and, and uh, Israel, uh, was certainly would have put the, uh, Palestine issue on the back burner. And then finally, um, there is this, uh, need on the part of certain factions to score points against rival factions. And this is what Hamas is attempting to do as well. They want to score uh, points against the faction that controls the West Bank, which is Fatah. That's interesting that you would
1: would say that because... I haven't heard many other experts weigh in as saying that that was really the, what they were up to with this um, along with the other two I'm hearing a lot of. So I want to talk with you about that and then I want to return to the hostage situation in particular um I'm sure you've seen this little back and forth between a Sky News anchor and an Israeli diplomat about the exchange of prisoners and the value of the Palestinian uh people who are being exchanged versus the the civilians uh, um, who were kidnapped from Israel? So, if you would remain with us for a moment, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, you are listening to uh, UCLA professor, Middle East professor um, James Galvin, and we'll hear more from him on a moment. In a moment on WCPT.
0: Joan Esposito, live local and progressive on WCPT eight twenty.
1: Oh, correction, 323. I am Tory writer Inford, Joan Esposito, today. And, uh, looking forward, we're going to talk a little bit about local businesses trying to make it through this Black Friday and Cyber Monday here in Chicago. But we are fortunate to have with us on a day in which, uh, the, the first hostage exchange between Hamas and Israel is occurring. Um, and we are speaking with Professor James Galvin, Professor of Modern Middle East History at UCLA he he welcome back uh, professor galvin you were just saying that there were that was a three-pronged um goal of hamas and and two of those prongs that they they were against the abrahamic accord abraham accords they wanted to uh bring the palestinian issue back into the uh prominent social consciousness and then you mentioned that the, that they wanted to score points against the palestinian authority in the west bank and that's interesting that you uh, came to that conclusion because, well, because, why? I mean, how, how has it helped them to have their own territory destroyed? How has that painted them in a positive light against the Palestinian Authority?
6: You have now demonstrations in practically every Arab capital in the world uh, in support of the Palestinian cause. You have now uh, basically uh, the, some of the countries that signed the Abraham Accords have uh, frozen their relations with Israel. Uh, Saudi Arabia has frozen its uh, attempt to uh, normalize relations with Israel as well. Um, so uh, they're playing a long game here. I mean, the, what, what Hamas is attempting to do is uh, make, a sh- make sure that they still have a certain amount of leverage in the international arena. And one thing that the Israelis have discovered is that they have no deterrence capability against Hamas. They can't deter Hamas. Hamas is willing to take the blows for Gaza. Well, they're willing to have their
1: entire civilian population, nearly, you know, tremendous civilian casualties. And the New York Times reporter who interviewed their political leaders in Lebanon and in Qatar said that they don't seem to really regard that as, as as a cost. But again, how does that score points against the Palestinian Authority? I could understand. I mean, people generally believe that they're rather ineffectual and that they are corrupt But I I don't see that the Palestinians in the two territories saying, you know, we're going to throw our lot in with Gaza. They just got the entire Gaza Strip flattened by Israel. What am I missing here?
6: Well, first of all, neither the Palestinian Authority or uh, Hamas, the Hamas government in Gaza, is a real democratic government. We don't know what people are saying. We don't know what people are really thinking in either place. We do know that both governments are, you know, have a certain amount of unpopularity in both places. There have been protests in the Gaza Strip, for example, in 2017, 2019, and 2023 um, because of the deteriorating economic conditions. Uh, the uh, leadership of the Palestinian authorities viewed as, cl- as sclerotic. They're very old, and also as collaborators with, with, with Israel. Now, you take this mix, and all of a sudden what you have is Hamas pulling off an operation like this. Okay. For the first time, Palestine. we're talking about Palestine now. Okay. This is something that we have to be very conscious of. We're not talking about Saudi Arabia and Israel normalizing relations. We're talking about Palestine. We're talking about Hamas. And so what they've been able to do is to make this into an issue again. And this is very, very important for them because fundamentally, who on your audience really understands or knows anything about or really cares about, you know, Russian independence or Kurdish independence? I mean, probably next to no one. Uh, and the reason for that is that the Palestinians have been very good at being able to take their particular demand oh, yes. for national sovereignty oh, yes. and make it front page news.
1: Yes, yes, that whole, the whole. Intersectionality and the cause, and we are common cause with people of color. They've they've done that very well. But I'm still, I want I will be watching now for for um, this point that you've raised of whether um, people now feel more favorably uh, towards Hamas after October seventh um, than they do than they did beforehand, as opposed to how they felt about the the PA, which is as you say, um, not particularly fans in in the west. Bank, um, for lots of reasons, including that Israel has been uh, expanding its settlements in violation of all kinds of rules there. Um, sure. So, so yeah, that so will if be... If I could
6: just interject something, if I could just interject sure. something here. Uh, the um, uh, Saudis, the UAE, various other governments as well, uh, the UAE has already normalized relations with Israel. Uh, they, they're on the side of the Palestinian Authority. And if some sort of normalization was going to be brokered, it would be um, basically advantageous to the Palestinian Authority and not to Hamas. Yes. What Hamas has been able to do is been able to rally uh, its supporters in favor of uh, what what it's done. Uh, Again, it's uh, been able to project, uh, project itself as being a part of this axis of resistance that includes Iran and the Houthis in Yemen and... Uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon and so on and so forth against uh, colonialism and American domination of the region. So uh, while, while you and I could sit back here and say, how it is it that somebody from, you know, a Palestinian could look at uh, you know, in the West Bank and look at what's going on in the Gaza Strip and say, my God, you know, this is great. It's you know, They don't look at it in that way. What they look at it is fundamentally there's a general general loss of hope in both places about what can what can go on in the future. In 2014, there was the last final round of negotiations, according to the Oslo framework. Nothing has taken place since that time.
1: Yes, we're going to have to we're going to have to leave it there. But I I, I take your your point that the, the end of hope is when people do these these horrible, desperate things. And I'm sorry, we don't have time to talk about that Sky News interview, which was fascinating and slightly horrifying to me, but I'm very grateful to you for your time. Thank you so much for your expertise. You've been listening to James Gelvin, professor of modern Middle East history at UCLA. Uh, his He's an author, he's a lecturer, and as you can hear, there's a heck of a lot he knows about what goes on uh, behind the scenes in situations like this. We'll keep an eye on the hostage releases as they happen. WCPT Live Local, Progressive.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: 3.34, Joan Esposito's show. I am Tory Ryder in for Joan today. If you want to join the conversation at any point, you can call or you can text. Uh, we are hoping and looking forward and anticipating that we'll be connecting with uh, the Senior Director of Cultural Tourism at Choose Chicago to talk about some of the local Chicago options for shopping on this Black Friday. Um, it's kind of interesting how politicized our shopping decisions are getting, whether we shop local, whether we shop online, whether we shop at a chain, uh, whether we're choosing to avoid certain stores that are stating their uh, political views on the Israel-Hamas war. It's it's really, we're getting down into the grit of it here. Um, and I don 't know about you, but i I definitely try very hard to support local businesses, shop locally uh, and avoid businesses which support causes that are antithetical to my views it 's amazing how hard it gets to shop after a while if you 're going to shop at all um, just you haven 't asked me for my shopping tips by the way, but if you have enough stuff, which is definitely the case at our house. I I tend to support Chicago by um, giving memberships to museums and cultural institutions. And those were the things that I loved when our kids were little. The grandparents would say, what can we we do for the kids? And I'd say, get us a membership to the zoo. Which, of course, you don't need in Chicago because Lincoln Parks, it was free, but... Brookfield Zoo, you might want that, or a museum. They always have stuff for kids, or the Peggy Note Bart. That's kind of a cool thing you can buy that supports Chicago and isn't stuff. And I don't know about you, but for the other thing that that is one of the things I most prefer to do uh, environmentally is to shop secondhand. And yes, we all know about eBay and many of us know about Poshmark, but Facebook Marketplace locally. Has become a huge. Well, I shouldn't say huge. It's it's a much bigger thing than it used to be, and you can buy stuff from people, and recycle and be green, and that's been something that has been really a, a good experience for me. If you feel like your security is important, you can meet people in you know the Staples parking lot kind of thing to exchange your good for for cash. Um, but it's been, it's been great. And I'll tell you one really inspiring story that happened. I was uh, shopping on behalf of a nonprofit that was putting in a kitchen. And there was somebody who was moving and deconstructing their kitchen and had some stuff for a kitchen. So I wrote and asked and said that I was shopping on behalf of a nonprofit. And this person said, Oh, the person said, I'm a graduate of the, of the Moody Bible Institute and I would love to support your nonprofit. And, you know, I'll sell all this stuff to you at half price because that's good work that you're doing. And I just thought, how lovely. How, how kind. It's really sort of a, a warm community feeling. I'm not saying you're going to get that all the time, but it's been encouraging. Very encouraging. It's a kind of shopping local. You return good to the community. It's gentler on the environment. It's nice for the people selling the stuff. Maybe they need the money from selling the stuff. Some people do. Um, the only thing you want to watch out is that, like, you want to make sure nobody's selling anything that they got under nefarious or suspicious circumstances. Uh, we were, we have, we have a kid. Um, who just finished university up in Canada, and the only time, he he swears it's the only time he didn't double lock his bicycle, both the frame and the wheels. He was in a library studying and came out, and the the wheels were gone. And the spousal unit said, well, you know, find some used wheels. And I I jumped up and down and said, wait a minute, how do you know those wheels aren't stolen off somebody else's bike? (sighs) There are ways you can sort of get a feeling of who's selling what to you, but it, but it is something you want to watch out for. You you don't you you don't want on that secondary market to be supporting people doing bad things. So while we try to get the shop local Chicago um, expert up here, we are working on it. Um, while while that is in process, I thought I would ask you. Uh, What are some of the conscious choices you're making this holiday season as you shop on this Black Friday? And while you're at it, you know, if there's a Chicago business that you think deserves a mention for the, for the good work that they do, um, or the service they provide, I'm, I'm open to that because I think the WCPT listeners are, are inclined to support that. I know there was a piece in Block Club about what is now becoming a full strip of women-owned businesses in the Logan Square neighborhood. I think there are like 3 or 4 of them. It's just it hasn't been an organized effort, but they've just sort of found each other and found these locations and one deals in vintage things and one deals in clothing that can't easily be found that's american made in chicago. Um I know that during the it seems like a world away now, doesn't it? The summer street fair season wasn't that long ago, was it? That you were out enjoying live music and uh the microbrewery tent And the crafts people, that was kind of a fun thing to, to support local crafts people by just buying from them directly. It's, uh, and maybe you, maybe you do what I do, which is do your holiday shopping all year long. I do. I do. Big thrifter too, by the way. Love that thrifting experience. And may I also say that when you buy something thrifted or vintage, If you love it, you can use it for a while and then give it to somebody else. And they don't know that it was in your house and you were enjoying it. It's just still vintage. It doesn't get any more vintage until it hits antique. At that point, at that point, you have to worry about it. Um, We got this text from Mark about uh, our conversation a little bit ago. circles back to that about doing ethical shopping and ethical working and working in a place where the politics are very different than your politics, Mark sent this message um, that I should mention Chick-fil-A and their anti-LGBTQ and women's rights stances and the funding of what what Mark described and and these are his words, hate groups and now the proliferation of these restaurants in the Chicagoland area. Uh, The people who are working there are they people who support these causes and issues? My response to you, Mark, would be probably not. The wages that you get paid at a, at a fast food place are the kind of wages that typically you make if you don't have a lot of other options in employment. And that may be, that, that's a gross generalization. But, you know, if you have a degree in nursing, you're not working at Chick-fil-A. If you have a specialized, if if you have, you know, experience as an electrician or a plumber or a construction person or even or or an early child care certificate, you're not working at Chick-fil-A. I I think at the point where you're simply trying to make rent, uh, you may or may not have a lot of choice about where you work or for that matter, where you shop. That's the, the flip side of that conversation which is, and you may remember, it still goes on. We don't have a lot of a certain big box store in Chicago. The one that starts with W, we don't have a lot of those. Some, but not a lot. But you may recall the systematic vilification of that store and the way that it treated workers and whether people really had benefits. And the company launched a whole campaign to position itself as worker-friendly and a provider of great opportunities, and they still are doing a lot of that. But in the same way that I wouldn't fault people for working uh, for a Chick-fil-A, because I don't think they necessarily have a lot of options about accessible transit to employment or what's available to them or the skills required, I also do not fault anyone for working in one of these big big box stores. It's privileged people who can take their money and say, I'm going to spend a little more and spend it here. It's privileged people like yours truly behind this microphone who can say, I'm going to work at this kind of radio station and not that kind of radio station. WCPT, Joan Esposito, show seven seven three seven six three. 763 WCPT is the text and call-in number. More in a moment. Live, local, and progressive.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. On WCPT 820.
1: WCPT, it's Joan Esposito's show. I am Tory Ryder. In for Joan. In tomorrow. Uh, from 1 to five, uh, 4, sorry, for Edwin Eisendrath. And if you want to find me outside the friendly confines, to use the Cubs expression, uh, of this studio, you can find me on the socials. It's T-U-R-I, Writer. And, yes, that is my podcast. And, yes, that is my book published by uh, local Tortoise Press. Shout out to them. And, uh, yes, I just finished the audiobook, So if you want something to listen to while you do that long drive, Go get that, and you can have me in your ear for hours and hours and hours. Jason Lesnovich. Have I got that right? I'm so glad you could join us. The Senior Director of Cultural Tourism at Choose Chicago. That's a big, long title.
7: Well, thank you. And, and yes, you did get it right. Oh, good. Um, thanks
1: for having me. What is, for so, so for those of us who don't know, explain Choose Chicago, what you do, and how you're helping out um, during this holiday season.
7: Yeah, we're called a Destination Management Organization or um, just basically the tourism agency for the city. And so, you know, we promote Chicago regionally, nationally, internationally for people to come here and enjoy our city. And of course, you know, for the holidays, everyone is out there looking for those special gifts. Um, our neighborhoods provide that great opportunity for people to find those one-of-a-kind gifts, and so we're promoting all the holiday activities right now throughout Chicago, including our great neighborhood shopping district.
1: So, which are where are some shopping districts in like West Side, South Side, North Side that don't usually get a lot of attention, but where you would like to perhaps direct people to shop?
7: Yeah, one of my favorite neighborhoods to shop in is Andersonville. It's a north side neighborhood right around Clark and Foster. And it's really known as the shop small capital of Chicago. I would say 95 to 90 percent of the 97 percent of the stores are individually owned. There's no real chain stores there. So you get this great array of different opportunities to go in and out of small um you know, family-owned shops. So it's a it's a great neighborhood for that.
1: I can actually speak to that because I live like two blocks from the border of official border of Andersonville. And one of the things I love about Andersonville is not only can you shop small, but you can shop secondhand, like really cool vintage mid-century stores. And the Brown Elephant, which supports the Howard Brown Clinic, which has fabulous retail, but. For a cause, So, yeah, I'm totally with you with Andersonville. And they seem to have come back really well from from COVID. There were so many empty storefronts, and most of them now have been rented by my uh, informal count. Um So, yeah, I'm with you. Tell me some other neighborhoods since you absolutely yeah. get a lot of credibility with Andersonville because I know that's good.
7: I'll take you then down to the south side. A great neighborhood to do shopping in is Hyde Park you know, where the University of Chicago is, they have a couple of smaller um, commercial districts, of course. There's something called Downtown Hyde Park along 53rd Street. Uh, one of my favorite stores there is called The Silver Room. Really unique um, art and books and jewelry. Great place to go um, down on 53rd. It's, um, if you want a bite to eat, I know we're talking about shopping, but Virtue's right there. An amazing restaurant. By um, If you can Eric get a goes.
1: table, good, good luck trying to get in there. But yes, they, they're very highly uh, regarded, Virtue, the restaurant, and And lots of black-owned businesses there, if that is important to you. Uh, Andersonville, for that matter, lots of gay-owned businesses, if that's important to you.
7: Yeah, a great, great array of our business owners are great in these commercial districts. Very friendly, very welcoming um, to have you come in. A lot of them are there to talk to you and and interact with you and give you great um, suggestions.
1: Yeah, they can actually help you. I, no excuses showing up at the holiday going, oh, I didn't know what to get you. I had no idea what you like. I didn't know, which, by the way, is my spouse, typically. Um, <laughs> no idea. I No idea. Um, so, okay, the South Side, Hyde Park. Give me some more South Side. There's so many neighborhoods South that people on the North yeah, Side don't know about. A
3: little bit of...
7: Southwest, you know, Pilsen is in a great neighborhood, another great vintage um, shopping area. And then, you know, right by a little village um, has some really cool um, um, shops along 26th Street, one of the busiest shopping districts in Chicago and has some really great stores to go. Talk about some.
1: Talk talk Street. about some of those because that may be news to some people. What What's there?
7: Yeah, I would, I you know, check out uh, Dusalandia. It's an amazing candy store. You can find all your stocking stuffers you want in a really unique candy store called Dusalandia. Um, In Pilsen, there's a great bookstore called Pilsen Community Books. Um, Another, and I will say a lot of these neighborhoods have great museums. So the gift shop at the National Museum of Mexican Art great array of, of unique gifts, uh, you know, especially for your um, artistic-centric friends there at the, at the museum. We've so,
1: had I we've know, had but... guests who are performing at the museum come and visit us on the show, and I would like to also add that typically if you want to buy something from a country uh, where you're not sure how the workers are treated, a good way to make sure that, that you're getting people's work where they're fairly compensated is a museum gift store because they're attuned to that. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So Pilsen. So, yeah. And what else in Pilsen? We've been hearing a lot about Little Village and Pilsen and, and merchants sort of fighting off gentrification that will put them out of their stores. How is that going in those neighborhoods?
7: You know, I I think these neighborhoods are well-organized. They want to keep, you know, uh, their heritage within those neighborhoods. So I think they're well-organized and and doing a good job of keeping their neighborhoods um, for, you know, that that Mexican and Mexican-American heritage. It's important to the communities there. And and you'll see that reflected in the businesses as you go in and out of bakeries and great taquerias, regional taquerias from the different regions of Mexico. So really... um, You know, especially Little Village, very uh, great Mexican neighborhood here in Chicago.
2: Very authentic.
1: Okay. So as we're circling, we seem to be going north, south, and moving a little west. Give me some west and maybe some northwest side destinations for people.
7: Yeah. On the west side, you know, I know it's a little northwest. Brooklyn Park and Bucktown continue to be a great shopping district. You, You know, you get off the train at Damon or you go to the Damon North and Milwaukee intersection and great, unique stores, you know, more chain stores, more high-end chain stores now, but it's a great shopping district. Myopic Books is there, which is an amazing um, bookstore. Of course, Reckless Records is still on Milwaukee. I uh, love
1: them.
7: Love them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Some uh, some vintage there, Vintage Underground is a great store that I like. Um, there's There's another vintage store called Store B. So runs the gamut, but a great shopping district.
1: Now, take me to the and far up, yeah, northwest there. side, because a lot of people never go up to, you know, Saugadash and, and Points Beyond, and our studios are right here, but a lot of other people may, may not come this way. What what's, what's in our neighborhood?
7: Well, you can head up, you know, if you continue up in Milwaukee, you're going to go through Logan Square and Avondale, great stores, and then all the way up to Portage Park and, and Jefferson Park along Milwaukee has some, you know, really unique stores. Um, A variety of um, options from even for like delis um, and and great uh, liquor stores and breweries there if you have you know. So it really runs the gamut because you know everyone in your family wants something else. They're into something and Chicago just provides this great opportunity to find really unique one of a kind gifts.
1: So now that you've mentioned the breweries I I have to ask you about Writ large, some of the things that are being made here, I I know for myself when I travel, I often bring a bottle of spirits made by Koval, which was, according to them anyway, because I took their tour, the first spirits company licensed in Chicago since Prohibition. And they're organic and they're locally sourced. And it's kind of fun to say, I brought you this bottle. It's delish and uh, made right in my backyard. What what other companies might you be able to mention um, that are, are are making things here in Chicago that people would be proud to present to others outside our city?
7: Yeah, there's. Um, I'll go back to Andersonville really quick. Dearborn Denim is one of my favorite stores. You know, they're they're um, you know they'll custom make your jeans to your length. It's a great great place. Um, to do that Vose chocolate for your chocolate lovers. And well, I missed that.
1: that. Um, I, your phone did something, and, and it was in the oh, middle sorry. of chocolate, which is absolutely the, the most critical item here. Which
3: chocolate?
7: Vose cho- chocolate uh-huh. is, is is made here, and it's a great place um, to um, you know for your sweet tooth lover. Okay, good. Uh, Cloudy Windy is a custom leather goods shop in in Lincoln Park. Great boutique. You get one of a kind bags and and other leather goods.
1: Cloud um, and so Windy? Did you say Cloud and Windy?
7: Cloudy Windy?
3: Cloudy Windy. Oh, okay. Cloudy Windy.
1: God, it does sound like <laughs> a weather report, doesn't it? Um okay, got that. And for custom leather would, things. Yeah.
7: I'll take you down to the South side in the Chatham neighborhood and She's a James Beard Award-nominated baker. She just opened up a new factory, and it's oh, Brown Sugar Bakery. Oh
1: yes, oh yes, Brown Sugar Bakery. You can bring a box of though of whatever she's making, and that will be well received. Yeah.
7: Yes, or get a or order a cake from her. You know, she's real. Her she's famous for her caramel cake. Um,
1: what about things yeah. that last a little longer than the stuff that you eat and drink? Well, you got I the jeans, you got the you leather. What else?
7: One of the most, you know, one story I love is Optimo Hats. For anyone that is really into a handcrafted kind of timeless style hat, Optimo is a great um, place. He, um, he makes your custom hats. He, his factory is down in Beverly. It's an old fire um, station. And a lot of the people that you see in the movies that are wearing 1920 era hats and 30s, he makes these for Hollywood, but his studio's right here in Chicago and it's Optimo Hats.
1: How cool is um, that? I had no idea. Does he offer, I mean, when you come to shop there, can you see the hats being made?
7: You can. It, it's a great, and it's funny, the, uh, the, the, um, firehouse that his place is in was redesigned by Skidmore, Owings and Merrill which is one of the most, most famous architectural firms here so it's a great place to go down and see him doing his handcrafted hats. He makes each one individually and he fits you when you go down and uh, you pick out your style and your fabric and also it's like getting a custom suit but for your head and it's a really amazing experience.
1: I love that. That's the thing that I, I can't imagine anyone who wears a hat at all who wouldn't love that whole experience. So okay now we've got your jeans we've got your hat we've got your leather bag or or jacket Um anybody making custom boots? Boots I'm not sure. They're, okay. They're,
7: they're, they're not, they're,
1: How they're, about
7: You can go get your custom guitar made at specimen, specimen products. They're out in the the um, uh, Humble Park area, a lot of famous musicians will come and, and get their custom guitars made here. It's called Specimen Products.
1: You you anticipated uh, my question. Instruments. And in the Fine Arts Building, I know there are places that people see luthiers and people who will fix them up with a, a specialized flute head. Um had I forget forget what it's even called. So, but I think you've given us a sense now. If people want to get this list again, is there a website they can go to?
7: Yes, ChooseChicago.com dot com is our website. We have all sorts of um, shopping guides for you. We do have.
1: Got it. Choose Chicago. Chicago. I I wish we had more time, but choose Chicago. That's perfect. Thank you so much. That's Jason Lesnovich with Choose Chicago
0: on WCPT. Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820.
1: Five minutes after, well, just about five minutes after four o'clock, day after Thanksgiving, have you fully digested? Good, <laughs> because we're going to have you move around a bit. Uh, well, you'll want to move around a bit. If you go see this show, um, you'll be probably standing up and and, and jumping. Well, you'll, you'll jump to your feet afterward and go, it's about darn time. Um, I'm talking about Potus, which has been extended at Steppenwolf Theater now. And before I just go all fangirl on it, I want to introduce you to the director of the show. Uh, we are lucky to have Audrey Francis join us um, on WCPT. Welcome. Thanks for being Thank here. You. Thank you. I I will tell you that. Well, let you want to just describe the show quickly because I think you would probably do that better than I would.
3: Sure. Uh, it, is, it takes place at um, the White House on what is already a chaotic day, but we follow um, four women who work in the White House and three women who have found themselves here today on what is likely the president's worst day in office. And you follow these seven women who are doing everything that they can to keep both the president moving forward, the states moving forward, and the world uh, not going into um, a complete disaster.
1: I think that summarizes it really well. So the form of the show reminded me of the British slapstick comedy. Noises off. Are you familiar?
3: <laughs> I'm very familiar. Um, I,
1: I had I saw that many many years ago when it was sort of a, a current. Thing. Um, and, and a lot of the comedy is physical, doors opening, doors closing, mishaps happening. Um, and what, what was really cool for me to see about this on the Steppenwolf stage was women in charge of all of that physical comedy. I think that, you know, outside of Lucille Ball and women participating in men's physical comedy, you don't Typically, see women doing that kind of a performance. Is, is that, in, to your mind, accurate?
3: Yes, it is accurate. And actually, when I read the play, I re- that was the first thing I thought. I thought this is amazing because this already the 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 technique of farce is similar to noises off. It's so it requires such athleticism, such endurance, and strength and precision, and it really requires the actors. I'll, I'll use a quote that Amy Morton said when she saw it, our fellow ensemble member, she said, those actors are landing on a dime. And so to read a play where seven women are given the opportunity to just be as athletic and as fierce and as funny as we can be, all at the same time, there was no way I wasn't going to try to do this play well. at that's
1: seven. That's exactly what I hoped you'd say. I mean, they're like the Simone Biles of physical theatrical comedy, these women. They're, I... Yes, they that's hit the best way to put it. Every time. And I, as someone who... Uh, when I was in Top 40 radio was frequently criticized for being, you know, why do you always have to be funny? Like nobody told the guys they couldn't be funny. Nobody told the guys to just shut up and play the hits. And I I was so refreshed to see these women doing that kind of stuff that people just take it for granted. Charlie Chaplin and the Three Stooges. And as I said, Lucille Ball was probably the exception for physical comedy, but to see that. And then the added layer that I also loved was all of this happens like a great, you know, dance line or cheerleading or, or you know, vaudeville or Busby, Berkeley routine. It all happens and it's funny and no one's afraid to look like a, a, a dope. And no, I mean, right. there, there are just these, there are these great moments, for example, that take take place on a turntable where there's just walking, but walking in such a way that it's hilarious. So um, that that kind of thing. And yet... Unlike Noises Off and other slapstick comedies, it makes a truly significant point, which you alluded to um, right at the beginning. You want to talk about that social point or you're going to make me do it?
3: i to talk about it. I, the thing that I love about this is exactly what you said. It's a farce. It's funny. But... Uh, It is so imperative that these women are grounded in honesty and in truth, which I think this excellent cast does masterfully, because at the end of the day, what this is truly examining is that we've, as women, have perhaps been conditioned to believe that there's not enough room for us or that we just... We can only get to a certain point as long as we're in a supporting role. But once we, like what you said about you on the radio, once you get into a leading role, all of a sudden everything that made you great as a supporter is now uh, not an asset, right? Like it's great if you're the supporting person, if you're funny and you're kind and you're generous, but God know you could not be that as a leader. You can't be complicated as a leader. And the other thing that this play really does that I love is the play starts out with each woman being somewhat of an obstacle to the other person's day or job or success. And as the play goes on, you start to see them realize they are each other's greatest asset. They are each other's greatest alliance and they become a team and it will take perhaps decades centuries for us to be a team to uh, reverse a lot of the things that we're conditioned to accept.
1: That's perfect.
3: They, they really,
1: you said it's so much better than I could have. And I, and I, you also added in, which I hadn't thought about when thinking of, and by the way, if you're just joining us, we're talking with the director of POTUS that's running at Steppenwolf, and I, I recommend that you go see it with an open-minded guy or um, your girlfriends. Um, But but the idea that you're fine as long as you're a supporting player, you're all, all of the cast members, well, almost all, well, no, all of the cast members in their roles their CVs—they're the best at every single thing that they do. Like even the yeah. one who lives a life of, of dubious um, ethical and moral <laughs> fiber—they're all the best at whatever it is that they do. Um, yes. Yeah. So the idea that the minute you want to be a leadership role, I will give you the top forty radio version of of what that looks like for most women. <laughs> That's money, Don. That's what that usually looks like in broadcasting. And these women have gotten way beyond being what the the famous to Chicago radio Catherine Johns called being the giggle chick. They've gone way past that point, and and they've they've. It looks like at the beginning of the show, it looks like they've claimed their space. But there's a question that's asked over and over in the course of the show till after a while it penetrates the audience. Would you care to ask that question or is that a spoiler alert?
3: Not a spoiler alert at all. Uh, The question is, why isn't she president? Yes. Everybody
1: keeps saying, you know, well, why isn't so-and-so president? Well, why aren't you? And and then the answer is always. That's the eternal question, isn't it? Yes. So it. (laughs) And it really is true. I mean, we all see people around us, um, who are better than the guys at whatever job it is that we are doing. And yet for some reason, we're being compared to the guys. We're asked to support the guys. We're working for the guys. And this play really points out the absurdity of that fact. So, Mm -hmm. and and it's funny as I'll get out. What, what is your, what is your favorite? I have a favorite. I'll share my favorite with you in a minute. But w- what is your favorite element of the comedy of the show?
3: Mm, my favorite element of the comedy of the show is that these women, to execute the comedy at its... Optimum capacity. The women have to operate as a team, the actors do. So, my favorite part is watching these actors know how to pass, assist, goal, pass, assist, goal. And it's so those big scenes where all seven of them are on stage and they understand the music and they understand the rhythm and we know where the focus needs to be and where the joke is. But what we don't know is how. Each joke is going to land with each different audience. And so some audiences find they really um, align with certain characters or they find certain things really funny or they'll be really upset at something. And watching these actors ride that wave, it's truly for me like going to a rock concert or a sports game, watching those masters of of acting on that stage.
1: Never the same twice is what you're telling me.
3: Exactly. You always do the same show and you never do the same show.
1: When you cast this show, um, the, the women are different races. They're different sizes. At first, I thought it's just race-blind casting. Nobody is going to make any allusion to anyone's race. But that was wrong. And then I thought, oh, the the sexual orientation, you know, everybody is obviously one thing. And it turned out that was wrong. Um, you must have had some fun blowing through people's expectations when you stopped to think about the play before you directed it what were what were some of the hidden surprises that you wanted to spring on the audience
3: Wow uh, yes I think what was what was really interesting is that the playwright was very specific of these certain characters must be of this because I am saying this about the current patriarchy of the government, right? Um, The other things, we could do whatever we wanted. And one of my favorite things that we did is we have two ensemble members, Sandra Marquez and Gadin Rodriguez, who are both A females. And I loved just putting um, those ensemble members in these roles in the government that perhaps we haven't seen yet. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of conversation and rehearsal of, okay, well, what is, what does this mean if you're this race and you're partaking in this part of the politics? And this isn't even about being, you know, the color of your skin or anything like that, but what does it mean? And so it just opened up a lot of cool conversations. And also one of the really cool things that, that I was excited by is that it didn't really matter a lot of the time. Some of it was just like, it's not about them being Mexican-American. It's just about them... Being really badass and good at their job, well, and, and being powerhouse females. That's a
1: that's a good observation because there were points where someone was noted, or their race was noted, or their orientation was noted, almost as like, yeah, we know about that, and and we're gonna we're gonna just dismiss it right now and move on because that's not the reason. Um, exactly. Yeah, I, I'm speaking specifically, actually, here about the the role of the first lady, um, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, She is a black woman and she Mm -hmm. it's acknowledged that she's a black woman. And none of that seems to really matter because there's a bigger problem, as you pointed out, which is supporting this guy on his worst day. Um, And yet she illustrates so many other stereotypes for first ladies. So it's kind of like it's an unusual bouquet of of attributes how did you speak with your actors about where they were going to focus their this this is your special area that you're pointing out to the audience or didn't you or how did how did the process organically come together of of that if that makes yeah, sense
3: Yeah well It it absolutely does, and thank you. One of my favorite scenes is actually um, uh, the journalist Celeste M. Cooper, Chris, and Karen Aldridge, who plays the first lady, are both black. One of my favorite scenes is them talking about the expectations that the other one has of being a black female in the White House. Uh. And so— I love I, I, I agree with everything that you're saying, because the whole the biggest point that we're making here right now is that all of these women are experts at what they do. No matter what their race is, what their size is, what their age is, they are the best at what they do. And why are they not president? And on the first day of rehearsal, one of the things we talked about, it, as I said, we all come to this table with different histories, different skin colors, different senses of humor, different Um, shapes, bodies, all the things, I want all of you in this. I, everything that makes you you, I, if you're if you feel comfortable with it, I hope you bring it to the table. I want to, us to talk about colorism. I want us to talk about ageism. I want us to talk about the, the the internalized sexism that exists within us. And so, essentially, to answer your question, I said everything that you are. I want it in this room so that we can unpack all of these conversations and see what is it what does it feel like to be a black woman and an expert and a scared white. woman? woman and i'm talking about the character of stephanie by caroline neff who is like just so afraid to take up space you know what does that mean between that conversation between a black woman and a white woman
1: i i so, absolutely want to talk more about that taking up space idea which women thank you cheryl whatever the heck your name is where we're being sold about you know leaning in and all of that yes, I, yes. I want to talk to you more about that can you stand by for a moment Sure. Fantastic. You are hearing from Audrey Francis. She is the director of a really remarkable show at Steppenwolf that's been extended. It's called POTUS. As you can tell, I loved it. And you're going to hear more about it in a moment. Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan on WCPT.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: 422. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan Esposito. A special thank you, by the way, um, to Julia Shu, who helps find all the cool people for me to talk to, and Paul Shavari, who makes all the buttons go. And speaking of making all the buttons go, here's... Audrey Francis, again, director at Steppenwolf, director of POTUS. Everything landing on a dime at, at this show. Um, and I just forgot what I was going to ask you. Oh, I know. Taking up space. Uh, taking up space. Thank you so much. Gosh, no wonder you're a director. You can even <laughs> better at me than me. Um this whole, they make a a perfect mockery of this thing that women are taught, We need to take up space, and at the same time, of course, we're told we should be skinnier and taller and smaller, <laughs> right. and and more you know, speak in a more feminine way and not yell. And, and but take up space, and I, right. I I just think that the 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 conundrum there is you know it's just you really lay it out perfectly. This poor. This poor downtrodden assistant, downtrodden assistant, who is stomped upon by just about everybody, does her very best to take up space, and she doesn't actually end up taking up space until something goes horrifically wrong. (laughs) Um, And and I just I wanted to ask you about. I'm guessing you would proudly claim the title of feminist, I know I do um yeah. what what do you make of this whole idea that that women are supposed to suddenly take up space but not
3: yeah, it's impossible, right? I feel like I feel like I hope it's getting better, but I think a lot of women are challenged to have to mitigate failure at every turn from the moment we wake up of what do I wear? because I want to be comfortable but I need to look good and uh, but also I don't feel confident in these shoes but I should be wearing a heel or you know whatever it is. We had a lot of conversations about the high heels that women have to wear in the oh, White
1: House. Oh, interesting. Do they
3: have yeah. to still wear high heels in the White House? No, I don't I don't think it's a it's any sort of prerequisite but I do think it's like an unspoken thing, you know, of how you look. And and we had talked to a lot of um, former female White House staffers who said, oh, yeah, I change my shoes. I have to walk into certain meetings in heels. And then the rest of the day I can wear my
1: sneakers. Can, but I, I, have to- can I tell you something about that? Yes. I, I worked for a big news organization, I will not name it. And the person who was the the founder of this large news organization, uh, was known to favor high heels. And so the women who worked for him could work in sneakers or flats or for all anybody cared, fuzzy bedroom slippers unless he was in the building. And then without being asked or told, all these women would put their comfortable shoes in the bottom drawer of their desks and take out a pair of high heels because that was what he favored. And and it was understood, wow. yeah. Oh yeah, and and I I couldn't believe it. I'm like, well, screw y'all. I'm wearing boots. That's what I wear. And sorry. if you don't like it, you'll end up. You know, that's too bad for you. But um, most people just capitulate when when it comes yeah. to these expectations. It, yeah, yeah. I it's I'm I'm sorry I interrupted you, but yes. No,
3: no. It's so hard. it's what you're saying. It's so interesting because it's. Um we, can, we have this amazing ability to compartmentalize and to say, okay, okay, if this is what I have to do at this moment, I will do that to get to this place, right? Everyone says play the game. It's just that the rules that women have to play by are very different and can often be demoralizing, physically uncomfortable, all these things. And so this thing of take up space, it's, it's a great notion. It's just so much easier said than done. And what I what I what I find interesting or what I'm trying to do if, if I see somebody like that that I'm working with saying, actually, my job is to make space and say, what are you thinking? Every voice here is necessary and valued. So poor Stephanie, she's trying to do these power things throughout the whole thing. But you can tell that they're terrifying her, but she feels so safe with Harriet, the chief of staff. So it's it's such a conundrum. I don't know how women take up space in a in a place that we feel we feel conditioned that there isn't enough space for us.
1: Well, that gives me the opportunity to shift focused a a little bit and talk about you as a director because that's a space where women are not traditionally welcomed. You want to talk about that?
3: Yeah. I feel very lucky at Steppenwolf. I've been an ensemble member there for uh, six years now, and I'm the co-artistic director with Glenn Davis. And it's it's for me, it's a really beautiful place because uh, there is space for women to lead there. And what I particularly loved about my opportunity to direct POTUS was I hired an entirely female team so we had a team of six of 26 women working on this play and one of my stage our stage manager laura d glenn she said you know i've been working here for 35 years and i've never once been in a room full of all women and i thought well this is the future and this is great and it was so fun because that that play that you saw Every single woman on that team, from stage management to understudy to actor to designer to, to to backstage crew, every single person had a hand in creating that show. And that, I would say, if I, if I can say anything about myself as, as a director, it's that I have enough humility to know I don't always have the best idea. But I love opening the space of conversation of saying, who has an idea here? How can we build this as a team?
1: Well, that is, A, to your credit... And B, a, a classic uh, women's way to lead. Like, and everybody knows that the final decision, of course, is yours. As it. A- As it should be. Uh, But this, this in gathering process, which works, I think, really well for women, as long as it's understood that one of us is really ultimately in charge. And as long as there's no sniping or backstabbing or all the rest of it, it's a great way to get the job done. And I think you get the best work out of it. Would you say so or, or no?
3: Absolutely. And I think at the end of the day, like what you're saying, somebody has to be the one who is going to carry the water to make the decision. And, and that doesn't mean a dictatorship or anything like that. But once we all establish that trust of, okay, cool. You know, if Audrey's got our back and she's got just as much a stake as at stake as we do, we'll all contribute. And then someone has to make the final decision and that our, our team was just so gracious and generous and courageous in that. And I'm really proud to be a part of the team.
1: Well, I'm really glad you did the work you did. And thank you for spending half an hour with us. I am I'm going to recommend that show without hesitation to anybody. How long are you running till when?
3: Thank you. We run until December 17th. Good. You got time.
1: So there if you want to know what to give somebody for the holiday, give them an early holiday present and take them to see this show. Give an experience. You don't have it cluttering up your attic. Ten years from now, um, tickets (laughs) to the theater will never end up at a garage sale. I can promise you that. (laughs) Thank you so much, Audrey Francis. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. It was fun. All right. It is just about 4.30 WCPT, Joan Esposito Show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan, live local and progressive.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT
1: 820. I am working on this microphone. I am working on this microphone. That was, that. I pushed up, I swear I pushed the button. Welcome back. You are on WCPT. It's the Joan Esposito show. I'm going to just, just for grins, I'm going to turn this microphone off and cough. Yep. Works. So uh, you just heard, if you're just joining us, you just heard from Audrey Francis, director of POTUS at Steppenwolf. And she she made me want to ask you a question and talk to you about something. And if you don't have our phone contact number this day after Thanksgiving, this Black Friday, this long commute from Hades. Uh, because there are people trying to get back after their day off, and there are people trying to shop, and there—I I still remember the—I I grew up north of the city, and I still remember what used to be called Black Friday, um, when traffic around Old Orchard would would sort of stop altogether for like you, you just couldn't go anywhere, and I don't think it's like that anymore. But if you're out and about, I uh, really appreciate your spending time with us here at WCPT. And you can join the conversation at 773-763-9278. If you were listening to Audrey or if you're just joining us now, the the question came up about women evolving into different roles than they might have been conditioned to take growing up. And I think that's true for lots of different underrepresented groups that I I hear it all the time. We were conditioned to be one thing, and that wasn't really who we felt we were meant to be. We were meant to be something different, and so we pursue that. And weirdly, uh, speaking for myself, I, I was not raised with a lot of ideas of what I couldn't do. I was raised with direction on a certain path that I was supposed to take, and I I chose not to do that. Family of people who were really interested in advanced degrees, and that was not my thing, and I didn't do that. Um, But it wasn't anything like what some of the women I know were conditioned to do and what they ended up doing. And so I wanted to ask you, if you were raised to be a certain kind of person— and then you found that you really weren't going to be that. That wasn't going to suit you. You weren't going to fit that. You weren't going to run the family business or you weren't going to get married and have kids or everybody in your family is a doctor and you just didn't want to be a doctor. Um, I actually have a have a good friend who said that everybody in her family was was raised to be a doctor and two of the extended family became doctors, discovered they hated it and quit being doctors, and now they do things they really like. Um, If you made that change, because listening to the director of POTUS talk about how women are – constantly, in a way, we're like shapeshifters in different settings where we're told we have to function, you know, looking like this in this setting or being, you know, being demure and polite in that setting. And sure, there's a certain amount of situational adjustment we all make. I mean, you go to a concert, you know, you go to hear Taylor Swift and you're a Swifty, you're going to behave differently than you might behave if your job is working as a hospital administrator. Obviously, but this kind of shape shifting is a is a small version of what a lot of people have to do in their careers and their lives where they are raised to be a certain kind of thing, and then they turn out to have to be a completely different kind of thing uh, I can give you some examples some examples of uh well there's there's somebody I know who was raised um to, to really work hard to get an advanced degree. And with this advanced degree, she would go teach in a school and she would spend her life as a classroom teacher. And that was what she thought that she was expected to do. That would be the, an achievement for her family. So she, she did all that. And then everything around her changed and she changed. She got divorced she decided she was interested in a more creative life. She started working in the arts. She decided she still liked teaching, but she liked creating programs for teaching, so she created a whole curriculum. She did so well with that that she was asked to devise curriculums for a couple, curricula, I believe, for a couple of elite private schools, so she did that. Her trajectory is so different than what she was told she was going to be when she set out. So different. And I think, I mean, we're coming into the holiday season for a lot of people. We're coming around the end of the year. People are going to start asking you pretty soon, what is your New Year's resolution? Which is, in my opinion, a really ridiculous question. Um, but it is a time for a lot of people for um, introspection. Did I end up or am I on the path that I was launched down from childhood? Am I on the road that was constructed for me? Was I, was I set on this highway or did I choose this path? So I thought I would ask you to let me know as you thanked whatever powers you thanked this past Thanksgiving, yesterday, as you sat around your table or someone else's table, hopefully, and, and looked at your circumstances and did a little inventory, perhaps, of the things that you were grateful for, was one of those things having found the right profession for yourself, the right occupation, the right path, and was that a journey in and of itself? Seven seven three seven six three 763 wcpt That's seven seven three 763 9278 I'm Turi with you, rider like the truck In for Joan Esposito I'll also be in for Edwin Eisendrath tomorrow at 1 And you can find me all over the place Podcasts, socials Just Google my name and put in the thing you're looking for Amazingly, I do everything but pop out of your computer and land on your desk Everything but that it's 20 minutes to 5, WCPT.
0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
1: We are live, local, progressive, day after Thanksgiving. Interesting text came in Um about being on the path that you were set upon or ended up on. (laughs) I was not raised to be gay, but that's the path I found myself on. That's a good one. There are a lot of, I know for sure of, um, and thank you for bringing that to, to my attention. I know there are a lot of women who did what they were supposed to do. This was before the gay rights movement, because I am of that age when that was just starting. And there were women who were raised, you get married, you have children. And men, for that matter, raised, you get married, you have children. And then they were unhappy. And they finally figured out that why they weren't happy was not that they didn't want to be married, but they didn't want to be married to that person of the opposite gender. So they, they rearranged and reconfigured and they have lovely children, but they have different partners. That, that definitely, I remember asking, um, a parent at my kid's school, who was uh, an inclusion specialist, and the way that he had worked it out, he he was a gay man, and he had been married, and they and he had a kid, and the way that they'd worked it out was they had uh, he and his he and his partner and his ex wife got condos in the same building. <laughs> And the kid basically had an extended household, just going from condo to condo in the same building. But since he was of my age and and would have come of age during the gay rights movement, I I asked him, you know, this was happening. You could have picked a same same sex partner at the time that you were choosing partners. What the heck? I don't think I said, what the heck? I think I put it more gently. And he said, in the culture that I came from, it was not acceptable. The culture that I came from was steering me to marry a woman and have a family. And I wanted to be welcome within my culture. I've heard that now from several people. There was somebody who was a director of of a different school my kid was in where all the mothers were like, this is ridiculous. It's pretty clear that this guy is oriented more towards men. Um, We we all sort of, the women had a conversation, and basically the conversation boiled down to tick, 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 kaboom. And sure enough, and the, the, the gentleman who was the principal of the school has been really lovely about talking about his journey and how he came out and... I think one of the most bittersweet moments of reading his blog and interview, hearing an interview he did. Um, the interviewer asked him, "What? What is? What did your wife say?" And he said, "Well, she said what any wife would say. What? Why did you marry me?" <laughs> and and then I had to really be honest about the forces that tried to. Not just the forces that tried to make me into someone I was not, but because I came from a community where there was only one acceptable path forward to forming a family, and that was to marry someone of the opposite gender and have children with her. I didn't want to lose my community. And I think that's probably true, not just for people who choose different arrangements of their families, but sometimes for people who choose unusual occupations or not to have children. You come into this world, and if you're fortunate, you're part of a community. And if you're fortunate, you're part of a community that supports you. But it's also very possible that your community will have some expectations of you that do not fit you. And that's where things get sticky. Because there's probably another community that's waiting for you and expecting you and will welcome you. But it's very scary to think about what you might lose. Typically, I find you you lose less than you think you will. But you lose something. I promised you I'd be following the uh, Hamas... Um, Israel crisis as it unfolds, um, the the kids are being looked after now. If you were wondering, there was one almost entire family that was taken, including twin daughters. They've been released, the daughters and the mom. Most of the people being released, though, are quite elderly. And it is not clear exactly who is being released from Israeli uh, jails on the Palestinian side. Uh, but A spokesman for the government was interviewed on Sky News in what was a very strange interview. I think it was from yesterday where um, he characterized the people being released as people who had been convicted of violent crimes, stabbings, um, aiding and abetting terrorist acts. But more than that, about these individuals and their lives, we do not yet know. And we're not going to know as much as we had hoped because... Um, I24 news is reporting that Hamas uh, has has refused entry to the Red Cross or the Red Crescent to visit the remaining hostages. Israel said that was part of the initial deal and Hamas is refusing to allow the workers of the ICRC to visit the hostages and evaluate their health condition, um, that was on a pro-Qatari outlet. The New Arab, the terrorist group, says it's conducting its own assessments and providing those to the ICRC. That's the latest on that. This coming in from the text, and by the way, if you want to participate, here's the number, 773 763 That's 763-WCPT. I was a total rebel as a kid. I am female, well, uh, college educated. I wanted to be a publisher who specialized in publishing people who had never been published before. I ended up being a stay-at-home mom and landed as a synagogue administrator. My dream was solved by a blog on the Internet. So cool. (laughs) That really is cool. So you get to publish people on your blog who've never been published before or yourself. People make stuff work. It's amazing. People find a way to make stuff work. I have so many stories of people who are, and maybe it's because I've spent a long time doing talk radio and people will call and tell you their stories. But just if you – I'm guessing you haven't heard every show that I've ever hosted here for Joan. But one of the stories that sticks in my mind was when we had the head of women in the trades, the spokesperson for Chicago women in the trades on the station. And I asked her how she came to be doing what she's doing. And she has a degree, I believe – I may have this wrong, but from University of Illinois. I think she said was in social work. And she volunteered – And this dovetails with, um, I believe it was Habitat for Humanity she volunteered with. And you may recall that just the day before Thanksgiving, as a tribute to Rosalind Carter, we had the person who runs Chicago Habitat for Humanity's Restore on the air. Anyway, the woman from, um, from the Chicago Women in the Trades Group volunteered to build a house. And what she told me was, I liked building houses better than being a social worker. So I learned to build houses. Paraphrasing here, I learned I learned a trade. And then I thought, I can help other women learn a trade. And that's how she married her originally designated career as social worker with the thing that she truly ended up loving, which was building. And now she, I loved what she said. She said, I, I go down to the supermarket and and I hand the card to the cashier. If I think she would be a good choice for Chicago women in the trades, you hear that a lot you know i set I set out this what I thought I would do. I was just listening to an interview with Bradley Cooper who uh, said that he was, he was taught to dream, you know, not to dream as big as he really wanted to dream. So he dreamed of being an actor, but what he really wanted the whole time he was acting was to be directing. And some of the directors he worked for picked up on that, and so they invited him into the space normally only occupied by the director. And other actors who reported would say, well, what are you doing in the, in the cutting room? What are, what are you doing in there? Learning the trade that was his dream. And I will also tell you that um, I have a friend who, who is no longer living, but I always think of her on Thanksgiving because I make so many of her recipes. She was a wonderful cook and she was trained to be a musician and a good one. She finished music training. She was a harpsichordist. She studied at Northwestern. She played as a performer, but what she found she really loved was working with children. So she, uh, they used to call her Miss Mara, the music lady. She worked at community music schools, creating music programs of motion and music for kids. And she would do anything for a kid if she found that the kid had an interest and an aptitude or even just an interest in music. If that kid didn't have any way to get to a class, she would find a way for that kid to get to a class. If the kid didn't have any money, she worked in Washington, D.C. towards the end of her life. If the kid didn't have money to take classes, she arranged a scholarship. But I occasionally she would still give a concert, usually as a benefit for a cause. And people were always amazed at her beautiful playing. But what she really loved, even though it wasn't the thing she had trained for, and even though it wasn't the thing that had put a roof over her head for many, many years, what she really loved was connecting children to music and motion, and that's where she was happy. Sure, it wasn't as fancy as filling up a concert hall or even a small club, but it was, it was where her heart was happy. As you go into the holiday weekend and as you do your beginnings of your holiday shopping, do you do any shopping to help people along the path of their chosen career? I always think that's a fun thing to do, to provide for people the means to be doing a thing that they really want to do, to get them the tools that they need to do something that they really want to do. That's my that's another of my personal Tory Rider holiday gift giving guides. If you have the means and somebody really wants to do voiceover work, maybe you can help get them started with some studio gear. Or if you know somebody who has a talent for fabric design and they really want to get started, maybe a sewing machine, figure out what, you know, not just how they want to entertain themselves, but if they have a dream of how they would like to make a living one day or see themselves expressing themselves in the world one day, you can help make that possible. I will tell you a story. I'm not going to stick a name on this one either. Um, There was somebody I worked with in in radio many, 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 many years ago. And she, she was the first in her family to want to go to college, and to go to college, and she was really short on money, and she lost the job that she'd moved across the country to do, and she was really in the soup. I probably shouldn't use that expression because a group of broadcasters that she'd worked with got together... And I'd forgotten all about this until she reminded me of it. A group of people got together, and this was before the days of Instacart, but they sent her a month's worth of groceries. I'd forgotten all about that. And a check for taking her first class in college. And she remembers that to this day. She's done really well. She has followed her dream. She has done many things. But the thing that she talked about when I reconnected her with her through social media a few years ago was this group of broadcasters who literally fed her. She said, you literally fed me so I could go back to school or go to school. You just never know what is going to help somebody get launched in their in their chosen field, it could look like, a, she, it, I, I have to tell you, one of the things we sent her was a case of ramen noodles. <laughs> a case of ramen noodles. And I'd forgotten. She goes, remember that case of ramen noodles? I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I remember. Yeah, a case of ramen noodles y'all sent me. I ate those for a month. And my thought actually being older now and watching my health now is, this is so funny to to think about my first, your first thought, amuse yourself. My first thought was, that's a lot of salt. That's a heck of a lot of salt was the first thing I thought. I suppose it was. But she didn't die and she got to take her first class and she ended up with a college degree. and, And it, you know, I guess it was the ramen noodles that kind of pushed her over the starting line. You just never know. So, on this Black Friday, as you wander around from store to store, or you're looking at your wire cutter list of most cutting-edge, cool, super cool gifts, and some weird ones, like seriously, who needs a $45 salt shaker? Really? Really? You need a $45 salt shaker? Actually, think to yourself, like, is there somebody who has said they want to... They want to learn gourmet cooking They want to work in a restaurant. Maybe get them their first really, really, really good knife. And then get out of the way. It's two minutes before five o'clock. I want to make sure that I thank Julia Shu, who made sure all these interesting people were here for you to meet today. And Paul Chavari, who not only pushes all the buttons in all the right order and makes sure that you get on the air and your texts get to me. He also entertains me. When I need entertaining during the breaks. So I will be in tomorrow for Edwin Eisendrath. And that means I will be here at one o'clock. And we have arranged some really um, cool people for you to meet. And you will want to do that. And we'll see you then. And maybe we'll even ask you what you're doing with your leftovers. I saw the most nauseating recipe for leftovers the other day. I swear to you, it was Make Your Own Hot Pocket. And I read what they stuck in there, and I thought, I would rather go outside and lick the pavement than eat that. But somebody is going to be having it and thinking it's just dandy. So, enjoy.